Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. We'll do a little grazing out of these uh, words of our Lord Jesus called the Upper Room Discourse. Before we begin, I invite you to join me in prayer. Our Father, I remember how the Greeks came and said to the disciples, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And uh, that simple, straightforward request echoes the desire of our heart today. Grant us the privilege of seeing Jesus. As Gail reminds us that we can consider and in considering that we would be provoked to godliness and to good works. Help us, Father, I humbly pray, to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. To the degree that that happens, we will acknowledge with gratitude that it's all from you, and all because of Jesus. Amen. When Jesus begins his upper room discourse in chapter 13, you have a little prologue here, an introduction by John to set the stage regarding what's taking place. And in verse 3, John tells us concerning Jesus the following words. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and he was come from God and went to God. And here we have identified for us the two most important questions a man must answer in his life. From where did I come? And where am I going? Now, Jesus had a very clear understanding of those answers. He knew he came from God, and he knew he was going to God. And I would submit to you that you are not ready to live life until you can answer clearly those two questions. Now, obviously, you cannot answer the second before you've answered the first. If you don't know from where you came, you have no idea where it is you're going. Now, the world says that there are three options as to how you can answer the question, from where did I come? The first is evolution. And so evolutionists would answer this, the question, I came from nothing and I return to nothing. I am a biological accident. That's all I am. A blip on the screen of life, void of purpose and meaning. The second option that you've got is the worldview of Hinduism, which is cyclical. I evolved from a lower form of life. How that all happened, I have no idea, but I am hopefully evolving to a higher form of life. And if I go through the cycle often enough, maybe, just maybe, I'll get the thing right. And at that point, cease to exist. 
They call it the transmigration of the soul. Reincarnation. And then, of course, the other option is the biblical option, which echoes the words of our Lord Jesus. You came from God, and you will return to God. Now, if you do not answer these two questions properly, gentlemen, you have no hope of properly investing your life. None whatsoever. Any comments or questions? What verse of chapter 13 are you looking at? Chapter 13, verse 2, in the original language, Lee. And when you use those newfangled translations, they'll always foul you up. <laughs> Gentlemen, stick with me. After all, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I don't know why they're laughing, Lee. So how you uh, answer these, or how you choose the question, what And by the way, he asked it. If you, before you'd speak, would raise that up so he can catch a bead on what number it is. So how you uh, answer the question of where you come from and where you are going is related to investing your life. You cannot invest properly. You have no hope of investing properly without answering those two questions. Anyone else? Okay, I'd like you to drop down to, uh, and if I don't see it because of the glare, just yell at me. So I'm half blind anyway. At the end of the upper room discourse, Jesus prays. This is called in chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of our Lord. I call to your attention John 17 and verse 4. For Jesus says to his Father, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And I offer for your consideration that these are the two most important questions a man must answer while living his life. Have I glorified God? Have I finished the work he gave me to do? Now, it is possible to properly answer the two questions generated from verse thir- chapter 13, verse 3, and not properly answer these two questions. And so, gentlemen, if you do not properly answer these, if you cannot say to God in the face, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work you gave me to do, you will live in eternal regret. Any questions or comments? I certainly agree with the first question, but finish the work 
that God's plan is for you. That's more nebulous. The, especially what is the final deliverable? Yes. Well, Winston kicked it off on our opening night. And he did not stutter when he said that God has given us the work of E squared. Now, everything else is just simply the environment in which you do the work of God. Your vocation is the environment in which you invest in the lives of people. It is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. And as Gail tried to drum into our heads, that Jesus said to aid you so that you're to get sidetracked. If you'll seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I'll assume responsibility for taking care of every other need you have in your life. So we have no excuse, absolutely none, for not being about our Father's business. Over here. What does it mean here to glorify God? Well, again, Gail called our attention, Matthew 5, 16. That men may see your good works and do what? So, what did you think Gail meant when he called that to your attention? How do you glorify someone? Yes. Walt, could you um, explain the difference or help me understand? There's a direct statement in Scripture about how God is glorified in John 15:8, And I'm wondering where it talks about the fruit um, by which our Father is glorified does that have broader application than simply um, reaching other people? Yeah. Yeah. Be very, very careful when you work your way through John chapter 15, gentlemen, because if you're not careful, you can end up concluding that you ought to be bearing fruit when the admonition of our Lord is to abide. Fruit is excess life. Fruit is the product of abiding. Show me a man who tries to bear fruit, and inevitably you'll find a man who does it at the expense of abiding. But if you abide, the fruit will come. The fruit is the byproduct. So God is glorified by our abiding in Him, and the fruit results. Amen. To glorify God is to exalt Him, to call attention to His greatness. Everything God does is to call attention to His own greatness. If you have trouble with that, you'll never have a relationship with Him. Yes. In in struggling with this issue of glorifying, I might be wrong, but. Uh, 
come to the conclusion that in most instances it involves putting him on display. We glorify him when we put him on display. We glorify Christ when we when we display his attributes in our life. And Paul said, whatever you do with either you drink, do all to the glory of God. Do all with purpose and the intent of putting him on display. And that seems to, for me, clarify it. Appreciate that. Good observation. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, in the language of Chinese, there's no such word called being, B-I-N-G. And in the Reformed tradition, we put emphasis on your being is far more important than what you're doing. And we see the confusion in the past hundred years in this country. So I hope that you can help me out through the lecture today. Is that work versus your being and the completion of your being in relationship to the glory of God. I think there's significant amounts of, of confusion in that area. Certainly, the word being is, is never talked about in the circle that I've been to. Hope you can help. All right. Well, thank you. Because I don't, like I say, I, I'm, the, I'm the one speaker who comes before you with very little to say. I'll take a little shortcut here, a little sidetrack, I mean, and uh, comment on, on that. And that is, there are three words you want to grab a hold of. No, K-N-O-W, B, B-E, and do, D-O. No, B, do. No, B, do is the product, or is part of the product of every man's life. You've got to know in order to be in do. Without knowing, you're stuck. So if I said you ought to be a man of God, you've got to know what a man of God looks like in order to be a man of God. So knowing is where we start. That's why God gave us the Bible. He gave us the Bible to know. But I think all of us would agree that God did not give us the Bible to make us smarter sinners, but to make us holy saints. A holy saint is a man who is the verb to be. He is something. And you and I also understand that it's possible to move from no to do without ever touching down on being. You can teach your dog to pick up the morning newspaper and bring it to the house. He now knows, and he does, but he's still a dog. He is the heart of it. Gentlemen, it's very easy in the Christian life to move from no to do without ever touching down on being because most businessmen are doers. Knit it out for me. Tell me what I've got to do. I'll go do it. Abiding is such an important concept for our Lord Jesus in John chapter 15. It's as we abide that we become men of God. So ideally, doing is the byproduct of being. Let me call your attention to another portion of Scripture. Let's go back up into the discourse itself in the upper room. 
Actually, they're already left the room. I'm not sure where they are at this point. But I call to your attention the closing words of John chapter 15. He's been talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says that just as the Holy Spirit would bear witness of him, in verse 27, he said, You also shall bear witness of me, because you have been with me from the beginning. And then a couple of verses later, he says in chapter 16, verse 2, he says, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. Just to you that these are two expressions of God's grace. First, the privilege of being his witness. God doesn't need you, but he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Because I love you with an infinite love, I'm going to let you give your life in exchange for the same thing for which I gave my life. People. You can get in the people business just like I am in the people business. You can be my witness. Incredible that God Almighty allows us to give our lives to significance rather than mediocrity. And the other expression of God's grace is that it will put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Gentlemen, that verse tells us that we will be stripped from being attached to the world. And note that to the degree that you become his witness, you can count on 16.2. If you're not involved in being his witness, you'll have no idea what he's talking about in verse 2 of chapter 16. So what he's saying is, sharing his ministry allows you to give your life for what God declares important, while at the same time keeping your hope on the eternal rather than the temporal. Lee. 16.2, it would be easier for me to have a different interpretation. Instead of being stripped from being attached to the world, why not say being stripped from being attached to the institutional church? That's a clear, more direct. It's a promise to you if you do this you will be stripped from being attached to the institutional church. I'm not trying to cause trouble, but that's more, that's more direct uh, interpretation. That's more related to synagogue. Well, let's talk about that one first, since you brought it up. I was going to go from here to some observations and applications. This is one of them, so let's just take a look at it for a moment. One of the applications slash observations that I want to make is that God never calls upon the believer to violate another person for any reason at all, period. Never calls upon you to violate another person. 
Now it's interesting that he says in verse 2 that when they kill you, they will think that they're doing God's service. Now Jesus said, and I don't know how he could have said it more clearly, in John 18.36, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, I'd fight for it. But it's not of this world. The Christian is not called to build or to defend anything. He is called to proclaim. He's called to be a witness. Jesus will build his church. And he says, by the way, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in that statement, in Matthew chapter 16, our Lord Jesus solicits no response. He doesn't say to the disciples, we'll build the church. He doesn't say it's going to be a tough job, and if you're really faithful and hang in with me, I think we can someday get the church built. He says, Peter, because of your understanding of who I am, I'm going to take you into my confidence. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to build my church. And nothing is going to stop it. Nothing. So, this does not mean that we do not discipline, as Gail was talking about it, in the way God disciplines us in Hebrews chapter 12. But discipline is never the violating of another person. And it is always out of love and for the purposes of correcting them and provoking them back to walking with God. There's nothing of the vindictive in it. It is always done in humility and always with the best interest of the other person at our heart. Now, the synagogue was man's idea. It was never God's idea. And we've kicked this question of the church around a little bit in our time together, but let me call to your attention that no place in either testament does God command people to gather one day out of seven. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. There is no such command. In the Old Testament, the seventh day, the Sabbath, was a day of rest. It was a day of sleeping in. It was a day of not working, sloughing off, taking it easy. It was not a day of gathering. In the Old Testament law, God commanded the people to gather three times a year. That's all. So the Sabbath was not a day of congregating. Now, the synagogue came into existence during the Babylonian captivity. The Jews got down there, having been beaten up by God, and got together and said to themselves, you know, we've got to stop this nonsense of getting God mad at us like this all the time. You know, how can we clean up our act? And they came to two conclusions. They said, number one, what we will do is we will ask gifted men to give their lives to the study of the scriptures. They called them scribes. Tradition says that Ezra was the first of the scribes. 
And then number two, what we will do is we will build synagogues. And on this day of Sabbath, this day of rest, we will invite the people to come and listen to the scribes teach us what the law says so that we'll obey God and not get God mad at us. That's where the synagogue came into existence. Now it was carried over into Israel when they returned from the Babylonian captivity. And the Bible says that Jesus attended the synagogue as was his custom. So there's nothing wrong with the synagogue. The synagogue is a great idea. But understand it is man's idea, not God's idea. And I call to your attention that man is always more deeply committed to what he creates than what God creates. He's far more committed to his priorities and his objectives than he is to anyone else's. So it's a bit of irony that Jesus says, they'll put you out of the synagogues, they're going to kill you. And they're thinking that they're doing God a favor. Interesting. That by protecting that which they created and they brought into existence, they are going to do God a favor. And of that men be warned. Any questions or comments? And parenthetically, the church, as it is culturally constituted, is man's idea. It is not God's idea. Never forget that. Good. You ought to go. Jesus went, as was his custom. But don't say that it's obligatory. It's man's idea. I'm kind of quiet. Any questions? Lon. It's team. Um, church, as it's culturally, culturally constituted, you said, as to be distinguished from assembling or gathering, which is commanded, is that? That's what we're doing right here. Right. See, a church, scripturally, is an organism. There's only one institution in the history of the world of which we are aware that has the commitment of God, that God brought into existence. And that's Israel. That is the only institution. And the reason why most of the church calls itself Israel is so that they can get God's commitment to the institution because they know it's not in the New Testament. Everybody who reads their Bible knows that there's no institutional commitment by God in the New Testament. The only way they can get that commitment is to call themselves Israel. We're the new Israel. Therefore, God's committed to our institution. Israel will be in heaven. Not the Presbyterian Church, not the Methodists, not the Roman Catholics, not the Baptists, not even my denomination, the one I brought into existence the Reformed Dispensational Baptists. We're not even going to make it. 
Only redeemed people. I was just wondering why you, uh, in verse 2, you say these are both expressions of God's grace and being stripped from being attached to the world. So because we're talking about synagogue, you put the, you put the world in. Yeah. Uh, and you did that for a purpose because... It's what we create. Okay, so, any, so just general things that we create. Synagogues, institutional churches, even our businesses. Whatever. Uh, not, yeah. Whatever, whatever we create, we're committed to. We've got a vested interest in it. And when we get a vested interest in it, we will protect it. And when we protect it, more often than not, we will do violence to other people. And the Bible never calls upon us to do that. And, and when we get killed by our churches for doing God's service, that's going to help us get rid of this attachment to what we create. Because I was thinking about a specific case that you and I know, a guy in New York City that got excommunicated. I was just wondering if this was a prophecy for him. I mean, he got excommunicated because he really wanted to bear witness outside of what was going on within his church. And as a result of activity, verse 2 actually happened to him. So I thought, gee, yeah, I think it's an illustration. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you. But just make the observation that to the degree that you're his witness, you're going to get flack. And that was an expression of the grace of God. And it's an expression of the grace of God. Okay? Let me give you another observation. Yes, Tom. make sure I understood it. So, when you were saying in uh, Matthew 16 that God's church will be built, um, that the concept of church from Jesus' viewpoint was people, not the building, which is supported in Ephesians 4 when it talks about a dwelling, that that's people dwelling. That's not like the building dwelling. And that, um, so therefore that, that in what you're talking about in John with the synagogue, the synagogue aspect is like a man invention and that, that is completely separate from what Jesus was talking about with the church. That the church runs with the men, not with the building. Yes. Yes, yes. I think you'll find in the book of Ephesians the word church used nine times. Without exception, it has nothing to do with an institution. It has everything to do with an organism. It's his body. It is that band of men and women across the world who have been touched by the living God. Made new in Christ. Now, as a as a follow up to that, um, do you think that what you just said would be how uh, vocational pastors would do that? 
or do you think that you know that the church is mentioned nine times in Ephesians? Our vocational pastor is going to say, "Yeah, I think that's right." Well, Tom, I'm a vocational pastor. I, as a matter of fact, I created my own denomination. <laughs> Yes. Exegesis demands it. Unless you want to be a text manager. Obviously, that's what it says. Now, remember, again, gentlemen, the believer's free to do whatever the Bible does not prohibit. The Bible does not prohibit creating institutions. There's nothing wrong with 2,000 denominations in the United States. Nothing wrong with them at all. If you want, like I did, create your own, feel free. It's kind of fun. We have two members in my denomination. We've been in existence for 40 years. Two members. No? No, it's another guy. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't reveal him very often. Uh, we uh, we, have, uh, we have every so often we have people who apply to join, but uh, it's a by secret ballot, and they always get blackballed, and we can't figure out who's doing it. <laughs> but that's just a minor problem we've got in our little denomination but all denominations have problems you understand this is ours we, we've been working on that though for 40 years we're going to get that thing figured out one of these days but uh, anyway no denominations are marvelous things yes an observation about this verse it's not necessarily supporting the arguments that have gone before this but uh and it's not necessarily conclusive, but you can kind of use it to help test the verse. Um, for 16.2, it's this. Muslims are killing non-Muslims, believing they have license from God to do that. And they believe that their God is the God of Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is God, but they believe Allah is God. And it rings exactly true with this verse. Yep. Okay, next observation. All people everywhere, whether they want to or not, walk by faith. That's obvious. Nobody knows the future, except the one who decides it. Therefore, the only one who doesn't walk by faith is God. He and He alone decides the future. Faith is commitment without knowing. That's the definition of faith. Now, as you all understand... The object of your faith determines the validity of your faith. It's not how much faith you have, it's what you put your faith in that makes the difference. So I could have more faith in lawn healing my body than Bruce. But Bruce would do a better job because Bruce is a doctor and lawn is not. So, I could go to Bruce and say I have very little faith and get my body healed. I could go with my problem with the lawn and say I've got a great life deal of faith in you and end up dying in his arms. It's not how much faith you've got. It's what you put your faith in. 
So, the object of your faith determines the validity of your faith. So it means that if God exists and the Bible is true, your faith is valid. If not, then life is a sick joke. Now, those whose faith is in God express it in two ways. First, through the revelation of the scriptures. We are in this room, I think, primarily because we're in agreement that we want to act on what the Bible says. Now, what I have in mind here are the objective statements of Scripture. There's no ambiguity regarding what God says. He says it. If you understand words, you understand what they mean. But there's another way that we walk by faith, and that is the revelation of God found through the ways of God in the Scriptures. That is, by studying the Scriptures as Gail has been admonishing us in these last two sessions, we understand the nature and the character of God. What He's like. Gail and I were talking about this the other day. I, I, I thought to myself, you know, if I, if I were God, I don't think I'd want to be studied. wife before you were married and you said to her sweetheart I want to study you as a matter of fact I think that within three or four years I can get six or seven volumes written about you would you marry me she'd probably say no you'll go marry somebody else I don't want to be studied but if you come to your wife and you say sweetheart you know I'd like to spend the rest of my life getting to know you I mean, really, really knowing you. She said, let's get married. What is the difference? One is academic, and the other is intimacy. We don't go to the Bible, gentlemen, for academics. We go to the Bible to get to know God. You don't want to be studied. But if we want to, He can be known. So we get into the scriptures and we get to know him. Let me hold on you, Dave, for just a second. Let me finish the thought here. To know him. Now, this knowing, this understanding of God creates an ethos, as it were, from which we determine the will of God. You say to me, well, I think I know what my wife would like for her birthday because I know her. I don't study her, but I'm a student. I've gotten to know her through these years. So you surprise her with a gift, and she says, how in the world did you know that I was looking forward to this? Well, you know her. That's how you knew. And it's in this manner that we determine the will of God in a subjective sense of that word.
So it forms the framework for answering a host of questions that we cannot find answers to any other way, such as, who should I marry? What should be my vocation? Where should I live? How should I spend my money? As a matter of fact, most of the important decisions that we make in life don't come from the revealed Word of God, but they come from the intimacy that we have developed with God by virtue of the fact that we have gotten to know the Scriptures and we've gotten to know God and understood His ways. I'll come up for air and give Dave a chance to ask his question and straighten some of this out. Fire away. When you said you go to your wife and say, I want to study you, it seems like you want to know before you commit is when you study God. You want to decide first before you commit as opposed to commit before you know. I, I, I'm not sure I would want to make the distinction. I'm simply saying that one is academic. And I don't think you would particularly appreciate somebody following you along with a notebook, taking notes on everything you do, so they can write a book about you. I would suggest to you that uh, that's how God feels. He's not enamored by people who like to write books about him. What he tells us he enjoys is the relationship he can establish with a man by taking up residence in him and living in him. Yes, Lee. Uh, we couldn't uh, establish the denomination from the second way of knowing because uh, it's so subjective that, you know, it gets so fuzzy. One person's opinion in terms of what, what President God would want and another person's opinion. So that, that would really hurt uh, any uh, desire to start another denomination because we need to write an SOP on this stuff. We need, to, we need to get it down in black and white so we can all subscribe to it. But if you've got your own fuzzy feelings of your intimacy of the way you think God is, it's going to be hard to tell other people, why do you think God does it that way? I mean, just so we can make an institution out of it, or I mean, it's very subjective. Uh, those of us who come from a Bible church tradition will say this is dangerous stuff. That we're going beyond the propositional truth of the Bible, and we get a, we get an intimate knowledge, and then we think we sort of know, even though it's nowhere in the Bible, how God is guiding us. You know, that's that's uh, my reaction. Yeah, I would say that's true. It is scary stuff. But I would also submit to you that that is the basis on which you made some of the most important decisions in your life. Like, as we've already talked about, who you're going to marry, what your vocation is going to be, where you're going to live, your standard of living, etc., those are all subjective decisions. You will not find the answers to those written in the words of Scripture. You'll find them in the ethos of Scripture. 
Lon? If we're not to study God, how, how do we best come to know Him? Is it through study of the Word? Is that what you're saying? Lon, I would, re- I would invite you to go back and listen carefully again to the tape on Gail's first message. Okay. When I sat next to you at breakfast the other morning, I asked you which of the spokes of the navigator wheel were most important. And you told me evangelism. And one of the spokes is the Word of God. And this is important to me. That's why I asked you the question at the time, because I, I sensed that, that knowing God was only, could only be accomplished through knowledge of His Word. Well, is, I, is, comment on that. I misunderstood you. I thought you were saying which is the most difficult for a man to implement in his life. That's why I said evangelism. If, you'd asked, if I had understood you to mean, and that was my fault, but if I would understood you to mean what is foundational, it's the Word. I just was wondering what you felt was the weakest link in the businessman or, or, or the world in general. Those who follow Christ, what was the weakest link out of those various spokes? And I, I, I don't know... Most of us, businessmen or otherwise, ECWs, most of us try to run our lives without any spokes. Yes. Well, when we make these decisions, um, who you're going to marry, what your vocation, all those are, are still... Things that you you walk by faith. Are Correct. You, are you suggesting that if we've gone through this process of getting to know God, we we know the answers to these questions, or we have more confidence in the answers to these questions, or what does that what benefit does that give us? We have a better basis upon which to make the decision. But I will not know whether I married the right woman until I meet God. And hear him comment on it. Yes. You have told us that whatever the Bible does not prohibit believers free to make his decision. Correct. Now I'm very convicted that even though the Bible does not prohibit something or guide us, before we make these subjective decisions, we are not free to make our own decision. We should try to find the mind and the ethos of God before we make these decisions. Correct. Correct. So let me finish the point I was going to make, and that is this. Never make subjective decisions regarding the will of God at the expense of the objectivity, objective revelation of God. Never make subjective decisions regarding the will of God at the expense of the objective revelation of God, such as, I know God doesn't really want me to divorce, but I do know God wants me to be happy. And besides, He'll forgive me. After all, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask permission. 
Or, to be very honest with you, Henriksen, you know, I've got a growing family with growing needs. And I'm working so hard trying to support my family and their needs that I just don't have time for this E-squared stuff that you guys keep talking about. Or the man who says, well, when I get out of debt and get myself really positioned properly, then I will really make my life start to count. I'll get my life in shape. Then I'll start being a man of God. And it goes on and on ad nauseum. And the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Any other comments on this? I got one more observation, and then we're going to quit. Yes. So uh, I've always thought that uh, when you were talking about forgiveness, that uh, the theory of do it anyway, ask forgiveness later, is very dangerous. And that is because if we have that attitude, we know it's wrong. And uh, that's very risky. Yes. Yes, yes. Let me... I think at another time I was with you, I, I mentioned a, a book that I read. As a matter of fact, I'm still reading. It's a long book. I, I got a daughter who tells me that in 19th century England, all educated people had read The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbons. I thought to myself, I've never read that. I thought, well, I'll try to be educated. So I started to read it. And it's a long book. But it's an interesting book in that he addresses the Roman Empire in parts of it as it touches Christianity. And in one of the sections in the book, he asks this question. How was it that a religion as gentle and mild as Christianity, who taught that you ought to turn the other cheek, that you ought to love your enemy, and do good to those who hate you. How could it be that such a religion was so completely vilified and persecuted the way it was in the Roman Empire? How did that happen, he says. And he gives two answers to the question. He said, first of all, it was the first time in the history of the world in which we have a religion who begins to spill over its tribal borders and proselyte other people. All of the religions of the world up to this time, they were had their own tribal gods. They were the gods of our people. And so, for example, in Old Testament Israel, the gods of the Philistines were not the gods of the Midianites, which are not certainly the god of Yahweh. And there was no endeavor on the part of the people of Israel to go over to Midian and convert those people. As a matter of fact, when Naomi lost her husband and two sons, 
she said to her daughters-in-law, go back home and worship your gods. I'm going to go back and worship my God. There was no endeavor on her part to lead those daughters to God. So for the first time, you have a people who go into other cultures, into other tribes, and proselyte. Leading them to worship their God. He said the second thing was the exclusivity of it. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I'm the only gate. If you don't come through me, you do not get in. And he said those two things, the fact that there was proselyting, so not only did I ask you, as I came over into your tribe, to worship my God, I said to you, you've got to worship my God to the exclusion of your God. He said, now those two things is what caused the problem. And I put the book down and I thought to myself, nothing has changed. Those are the exact two reasons why they will put you out of the synagogue as well. I see the second as a reason for vilification more than the first. Crossing the boundaries and it's PC nowadays, letting immigration in. Well, that's national. Let them them into the country. But it's it is not PC to try to lead them to Christ. And it certainly is not PC to tell people that Jesus is the only way. Perfectly correct. So you ought not to be talking to your neighbor about Jesus in the first place. And if you do have the audacity to do it, at least agree that your way is just one of many good ways. Any question or comment on this? Yes, David. I, um, in my mind, you're saying this is the only religion ever that has the element of outreach? I'm saying it was the first time in the history of the world that such a thing had been seen. Now, our friend at the back of the room here made reference to the religion of Islam. Islam came into existence the 7th century. And Islam borrowed from Judaism and from Christianity. It borrowed from Judaism the idea of the theocracy. They're going to create the kingdom of God on earth. And borrowed from Christianity evangelism and said that we will be proactive in bringing it about. Only their evangelism was with the sword, not the word. It was not through proclamation, it was through coercion. Okay, let me wrap it up for us. 
The two questions we asked in John 17:4: Have I glorified him on earth? Have I finished the work he gave me to do? They're tested by the answers that you give in John 15:27: Are you his witnesses? And 16:2: What's been the reaction? The two go together. It's hard to have the first without the second. Or to put it another way, if you are not experiencing John 15:27 and John 16:2, you are probably not doing John 17:4. Yes. If you are not experiencing being his witness and getting persecuted for it, in all probability, it is because you're not glorifying Him on the earth and doing the work He gave you to do. Are we together? I'm going to give thanks for this rising anti-Christian sentiment. You ask where you get 16-2 in there. <laughs> <laughs> We should be thankful for the rising anti-Christian sentiment in this country by the liberal left because it's allowing us to get the 16-2 box checked off. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I can't think of a more appropriate way to close off our time together.